Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Activist Lawyer. I'm here in the studio with Jack. Hello everyone. And today we have a special guest who's joined us all the way from Strasbourg, but is pretty local to us here. <laughs> it's Michael Clemens. Michael, thank you so much for coming into the studio. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, and into the studio. Thanks for making yep. the effort to come in as well. <laughs> it's great to have somebody in person too. So just a brief introduction to your background, then we'll get into your work um, okay. in a little bit more detail. Michael is a human rights lawyer in the registry of the European Court of Human Rights. He's responsible for filtering and assessing new applications to the court and dealing with interim measures applications for both the UK and Ireland. Michael completed an undergraduate degree in law and criminology and has a Master's of Law in Human Rights Law and Transitional Justice. Michael, during his training in KRW Law, assisted on an, the running of high court actions relating to legacy matters, personal injury, Article 2 inquests and non-Article 2 inquests. Responsible for numerous high court actions, circuit court actions, inquests and criminal matters in the Republic of Ireland also. He was admitted to the role of solicitors in Northern Ireland in October 2021 and admitted to the role of solicitors in the Republic of Ireland in February of this year. Michael is also a member of the Haldian Society of Socialist Lawyers and the European Association of Lawyers for Democracy and Human Rights. Welcome again, Michael. Thank you very much. <laughs> right, a lot, a lot to get through there <laughs> and it's really interesting. We haven't had anybody on from um, with, with, with that expertise in terms of the European Court of Human Rights. So it's interesting to get into your work there. But just before we go into that a little bit further, can you give our listeners maybe just a little bit of background about yourself yeah, and course. your journey into your, your legal career, which is quite niche? Yeah, um, well, I, I think, you know, I, in terms of going into law, it's not something I'd always thought about or really known I had an interest in, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I did my degree and it was law with criminology and actually, to be honest, it was maybe the criminology side that interested me more. But when I actually got into the law side of things, um, I picked that up a bit more and okay. and I, I suppose law is always seen as a good degree to have. So I, s- I think that's honestly <laughs> the most amount of thought I'd given it at the time. But um, and I remember in my third year, I had a module on transitional justice and I find that really, really interesting, actually. Um, it sort of stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I finished my law degree again, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I cleared off to Australia for a year um, <laughs> just to try and As figure things did. out. Yep. Exactly. Um, and it was then that I was thinking about, I'm coming home soon. What am I going to do next? And I had noticed the, the human rights masters. Um, but again, it was that tr- transitional justice module that had sort of stuck with me. And that yeah. was the reason I decided, OK, we'll, we'll go for this. And um, actually, when doing the masters, it was the human rights part of it that stuck out more to me. Really, yeah. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, that's how I learned about the court where I am now, and um, yeah, just it sort of opened mm-hmm. that window into that world a bit more. Um, and then I worked at a couple of corporate firms in Belfast, but at the same time, always trying to kind of get into human rights mm-hmm. or something that I found interesting. Um, so while I was working there, I was doing a lot of different internships and traineeships and volunteering and mm-hmm. things like that. And one of them was actually at KRW Law. So I did, I think it was a day a week for a few months. Um, and that was a really, really good way to get into a firm that was working on human rights. Sure, yeah. Um, and just to get a bit of experience in the mm-hmm. office, really, and make some connections and things like that. Um, and I do remember after maybe about a year after I'd graduated, just really thinking like, why am I not working in human rights yet? Why is this not working? (laughs) What's happening? Um, And it was actually around that time then I got a phone call from the European Court of Human Rights and Mm -hmm. was offered a traineeship there. 
Um, so that was end of 2017. Uh, I started the traineeship then at the start of 2018, and that was fantastic. It was mm-hmm. five months at the court uh, working directly under one of the judges. So I was assigned to the Ukrainian judge, and it was just basically what the judges needed assistant with, assistance with. So it was a lot of research and drafting and mm-hmm. attending hearings and things like that, um, which was a fantastic experience. I really, really enjoyed it. So, yeah. um, and that's, again, how I got to learn a bit more about the court and how it works. Mm-hmm. And even I found out about my current job then as well, or that the position existed, really. Um, so I returned then back home and through having done volunteering and my time at the court then um, I was able to get a job at KRW as a paralegal Mm -hmm. and I did that for about a year until I started my training contract then in September 2019. Um, Of course I started my training contract and this job at the court was advertised and I thought I can't apply for it I have two years to do Um, but I thought I'll go ahead they have a reserve list I'll try and get onto the reserve list and see what happens Um, so I chipped away then at the institute and um, through my training contracts and then in July 2020 Mm -hmm. I was offered my current role um, and I had another panic attack. (laughs) 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 I had about another year of my training contract left to do. Um, So I had been in touch with the Law Society uh, about the possibility about that this might happen, mm-hmm. um, and uh, mainly with Anne Devlin. I think she's just left, actually, but she was fantastic. Um, I basically, I had to beg the court to push my start date back. Okay. So it had to be after I completed my exams at the Institute, and then I had to beg the Law Society to allow me to finish my in-office training at the court, mm-hmm. um, and I had to make like submissions to the Education Committee and things like that. Um, so... It was about a month, I think, by the time I'd got my final answer from everybody. But <laughs> it was the, the most stressful I can feel summer. The stress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't fun. But no. Uh, no, everybody was fantastic and everybody was really helpful. Yeah. And oh, that's they, good. they signed off that I could finish my training. Oh, thank goodness. So um so yeah, so I was offered the job and I started in January twenty twenty one then, just after I'd finished my exams at the Institute. Mm-hmm. Um and not a not a lovely time to move to France no, just with I'm lockdowns just thinking, and yeah. <laughs> everything. Wow, God, that was a lot, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so I've just I've been working in the rule now for just under a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, because I was allowed to use my time in Strasbourg uh, to finish my training contract, then I actually qualified as a sister. Then there. Uh, just yeah. October passed. Okay. And then I thought um, I'd known you could apply to go on the rule in the south as well. So I just sort of thought. Mm-hmm. May as well, um, absolutely. Especially in terms of when I'm um, coming home from mm-hmm. France, it's just best to have as many qualifications so. as I can. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind Fantastic. of my background and how I got where I am. That's so interesting. It's I've heard that mm-hmm. before with people. You're often in, in that position where trainee contracts are often and the right one, the one for yeah. you. Yeah. You know, they're difficult to come by. But then, if you're offered such an amazing opportunity that came your way. Yeah. You know, fair play to you for, you know, trying to, to push that through because I'm sure, you know, people in that position might, you know, not have done that yeah. and well, would that have the thing, remained yeah. in the contract and then potentially have lost the exactly. opportunity. So that's good. And it's good to hear that there were inroads there that you could make in terms yeah. of pursuing both. No, absolutely. So congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, and how, how was it completing half, basically half your training contract here in Northern Ireland and then uh, like completing the it rest was strange. of it? I mean, obviously... In terms of the actual training contract and qualifying as the solicitor, it doesn't play into my current role mm-hmm. because 
<clears throat> you don't actually need to be qualified. You're not practicing technically, yeah. so you don't actually need to be qualified. Obviously, it helps. Um, so there is an element of distance where you're not maybe you're not thinking about it as much. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was very much. I mean, I might not have even applied for the job mm. because of the training contract. Mm. And as I said, my mind was to get onto the reserve list. Um, so I was kind of I was offered this amazing opportunity and <laughs> it couldn't turn it down. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but obviously, within law, it's very much training contracts mm -hmm. are gold dust, and yeah. you don't turn them down either. So I was just really, really lucky that it worked out yeah. well for me, um, and also that I was able to start in my current job, but you know, uh, work towards qualifying at the yeah. same mm -hmm. time. So I got the best of both worlds in that sense. Fantastic. So you're at the registry of the European Court of Human Rights. Could you just maybe explain to listeners a little bit about the the institution, the organisation, and what? Exactly, not exactly that you do, because I'm sure it's very <laughs> wide range. And we'll look at a little bit um, more into your work um, shortly, but just in terms of, you know, the setup. Yeah, of course. So um, the overall body is called the Council of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, it was started after the Second World War, um, and it is completely separate from the EU, although okay. they do have a lot of, uh, it does get very confusing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have an e EU parliament right, is right beside us in, in Strasbourg as well. But nothing to do with... No, yeah. but very closely linked in terms of different projects yeah. and things, but mm -hmm. completely separate bodies. Um, mm -hmm. The Council of Europe has 46 member states. Mm -hmm. um, so it has a lot of countries that aren't EU members. But as, as I said, there's a lot of kind of working between the two. But So there's the Council of Europe, and then within that, there's the European Court of Human Rights was set up... Um, I think it was the 1950s, maybe, but mm -hmm. it became a full-time court in 1998. Um, before then, it didn't sit all the time, okay. and, and now it does. Um, so, as I say, it's 46 member states. It was 47, although Russia have been removed as a member of the Council of Europe. Um, so, they have, I think there's something like 13,000 pending cases, so I'm not really, I'm not involved in mm -hmm. any of that, obviously, so I'm not sure what's happening there. But wow. um, basically what happens is within the court, you have the registry, which is all the lawyers in the court, mm -hmm. and our jobs are to deal with applications that come in. Um, that can be, my job is mainly filtering applications, so, you know, do they meet the admissibility criteria, mm -hmm. are the applications filled in properly, and... and um, uh, are the legal arguments relevant? Mm -hmm. You know, are they arguing um, under the convention properly? And then the steps up from that are the more serious cases where uh, lawyers, some of the senior lawyers, then will draft judgments and things right. like that, and work quite closely with the judges within the court. But as I said, mm -hmm. it's, it's separated out into each individual member state will have its own team basically within the court. So I work mm -hmm. on the Irish and UK cases and only those. Okay. Um, so I don't touch cases from any other country unless. Mm -hmm. You know, there's maybe crossover. Some people mm -hmm. you can make applications against mul against multiple member states, for example. So there can be some crossover. But mm -hmm. my uh, day to day is really um, m there's myself and another assistant lawyer, and the two of us deal with every application that comes in against the UK and Ireland at the moment. Um, we just have two of you there to filter. Those just two of us. We've quite a small team. Yeah. Um, the UK and Ireland unit is two two. Um, two assistant lawyers, myself and another, and then uh, two senior lawyers. Mm -hmm. So it it is quite a small team. I think higher case count countries like Turkey or Ukraine or Romania, for example, they maybe have 30 or 40 people in their team. So oh. it, it really dictates the, okay. the amount of cases you get in, you know, uh, dictates how many people actually work in the team. So mm -hmm. we're a relatively low case count country. But mm. the UK is interesting because <laughs> we don't get that many cases, but we do get some big ones. Um, okay. Uh, so I suppose I'll, I'll 
we'll talk about those a bit later. Yeah. But um, they might go have all a the few way. more coming your way <laughs> 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 the next couple of years. Yeah. I expect. Um, and then another element of our work is dealing with interim measures applications. So mm. that can be if something is imminent, something serious is about to happen. You can make an application to the court, basically asking them to stop something or to take a positive action. Normally, it's in terms of uh, deportation or extradition cases. So it tends to be, or the most common will be, uh, someone is being sent to a certain country and they think, or they're, they're submitting that mm-hmm. going being sent there will be a violation of one of their human rights. Yeah. Um, so the court will then, um, obviously if there's merit to it, the court can step in with an interim measure mm-hmm. and that stays everything until the full case is heard. Um, so we have to deal with those, which can be, <laughs> can be quite stressful and then co- come so. in at any time as well. Yeah. So um, we get a few of them. It's been a bit quieter recently, but Has last it? year was quite busy. And is that Ireland and UK together then? Yeah, which, although yeah. there's almost never against Ireland. I don't think okay. I've seen any. I mm. think I may have actually submitted the very last Irish one in 2019 when I worked at Caretone. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I'm not 100% yeah. sure, but I need to check that. But um, yeah, so there's very few comments in against Ireland in yeah. the same way. But um, And those cases, obviously, the extradition cases take in, you know, the criminal law aspect as yes. well. Is that something I know, you know, your background was very much involved in, you know, and your degree as well in terms of criminology. Does that really interest you to get those cases before you? Yeah. Or, you know, are there any other areas within your work that you'd be... Well, it's, it's such a wide net in terms yeah. of, I mean, human rights is everything, you know, um, yeah. and we get everything. We get employment, we get family law, we get uh, criminal, we get a lot of criminal, actually, um, a lot of immigration stuff mm-hmm. as well. Um, I think, to be honest, I just quite enjoy the variety of it all. Yeah, that's good. Um, and just every file you're going to pick up is something different mm-hmm. and something new. Um, mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it's also good in terms of, I mean, this is a, so I maybe didn't explain the actual rule I'm in properly in that sense that it's a fixed term contract. So mm-hmm. it's it's called an assistant lawyer scheme. The idea is that you bring people from all over Europe to work in the court for a fixed term. Okay. And then the idea is they've learned how the court works and they can go back to their home jurisdiction then. And, and understand and, yeah, and practice how, that's exactly. really interesting. So yeah. my mindset from basically arriving is what am I doing after this? You know, there, okay. there has to be an end date. So um, in terms of uh, working on files and cases that deal with every type of law, it's really helpful Brilliant. to have a wide variety of experience from really that and is. kind of learn. Because we have to sit and read through, you know, have they used the right appeal here? Have they gone to the right uh, through the right processes? Have they, I don't know, raised yeah. the most the, the right points and things like that? Because of course, all domestic remedies have to be exhausted exactly. first. Exactly. So you get I don't know if you want me to do a full breakdown of the court's admissibility criteria can take away. Well, <laughs> that's that's one of the main ones in terms of you need to yeah. exhaust. You, you can't. You can't just come to the court and yeah. say, you know, my Article 3 rights have been violated. Mm-hmm. You need to give the domestic courts a chance to review that first. Mm-hmm. The court sees itself, I think, in some ways as a uh, a body with oversight over, or maybe more so in um, looking over the domestic courts and making yeah. sure that they are implementing the convention properly. But mm-hmm. the court's always kind of um, hesitant to take step mm-hmm. in first it wants the domestic of courts to have its first look basically yeah. um, so that is the biggest one in terms of you, ne- you need to take your case to the domestic courts first but in terms of us going through applications it has mm-hmm. to be to the right domestic court you know you can't just take it to mm-hmm. anyone and that's part of our job is assessing okay have they gone to the right court have they appealed mm-hmm. to the right court um, and that can get quite complex at times and you're having to do a bit of research on yeah. what the appeal process is so sure. and at that um, point you could say well we're not going to be able to admit it because exactly. It ha- okay. Exactly. So that's probably where most cases fall down is technicalities oh, and not big, big not time. Big, yeah. yeah. So we actually have a stage before that. It's called Rule Forty Seven, which is um, how you fill in the application form, um, and that can be very strict. 
um, in terms of if it's not signed, if you know certain sections aren't filled in, we just don't look at it. It's gone. Um, now, measures like that, I think, come from us having such high case count countries mm-hmm. because these measures apply across the mm-hmm. court. So you have you know, Turkey, uh, Russia previously, and uh, Romania and Ukraine. The countries like that, but getting mm-hmm. so many, they get thousands, they need to find ways to kind of filter through them. And mm-hmm. these measures have come in, which when applied to our lower case count, maybe seem a lot more mm-hmm. uh, stringent or strict, but uh, it is kind of a court-wide practice. So that's, sure. the, that's the first stage, um, is just, uh, has the application form been filled in properly? Have we been given, uh, given all the documents we need as well? Mm-hmm. That's quite an important one, actually. We'll get applications where... You know, the applicant will say, I went to the Court of Appeal, but there's no Court of Appeal judgment there. And you can't make a decision without knowing what the Court of Appeal have said. So mm. um, that's the first stage. And then after that, you move on to admissibility criteria, um, which is exhaustion of domestic remedies. But it's also, um, it has to be within six months of the final decision. Okay. Um, so some pressure so there yeah, to get. Yeah. Which has actually now just changed to four months. They've brought a new protocol in um, from the start of February. So any final decisions after the, f- the the start of February, you need to bring your application within four months of that. So um, again, I think these are measures coming yeah. from the higher case count countries where they're applying them across the board. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, it, it. I mean, that's our job is to assess all this, and it can be quite tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, for I mean, we haven't. I, I I wouldn't say there's a massive difference even between. We get a lot of lay litigants applying. I was going to ask that. Yeah, what type of people come before you, or it's you know, who's bringing mix. the case? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say most of them are from lay litigants and people who have um, been taking their own cases through the domestic courts. Um, we get a quite a lot of that. Right. Um, Interesting. But yeah. we do get. I mean, we do get a lot from from law firms as well. Uh, but sure. honestly, sometimes it's not. It's not a clear distinction when a law firm is submitting them that they've done everything right you know it's mm. not not always a yeah, foregone conclusion that it's exactly. exactly which is it's, it's interesting but again you know it's it's quite a complex procedure and yeah. um in terms of the actual idea of the job i'm doing uh, is for me to learn that procedure so that i can bring that skill home with me i guess mm-hmm. so um it takes a while to get used yeah. to but that's kind of the the basics of it I guess that's so interesting yeah to understand how in practice that works Mm -hmm. and I didn't I mean I suppose it makes sense to have it as a fixed term position that you I I get that you know um well such skills that you you bring back to wherever you end up working after this just in terms you mentioned their article three and we talked a little bit about extradition Mm. um they're probably cases, I think you mentioned that they, they come up quite frequently, more than yeah. others from probably both the UK and Ireland. Um, I was looking at one that you, you'd mentioned, um, I think there was a recent press release, it was twenty yeah, 2022, was it? Mm. Um, Sanchez, Sanchez. Um, just by way of example, I think it's a really interesting case just it to is. see in practice how this works if you yeah. want to just maybe bring listeners through it. Jack mm-hmm. and I had a good read at it yeah. before, but we're like, God, <laughs> how does this work in practice? But yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, so I I haven't directly worked on Sanchez. Sanchez, you, you will notice mm-hmm. um, the cases application numbers or the mm-hmm. dates on them will be a few years before they actually come, come before, before the court. I suppose that's yes. the same with any court, to be fair. But um mm-hmm. So while I haven't directly worked on it, I have worked on cases that have come in after it, okay. that are following it, and have all um, been set aside. Now they'll follow whatever decision comes mm-hmm. out of this case. So, um, yeah, so it went before the Grand Chamber. Um, it was heard beside another case against Italy, 
But basically the question being asked is in relation to extradition to the United States. Mm -hmm. And in terms of um, the U.S. has um, life sentences without uh, without parole, basically. And the court has found in, there was a case called Vinter, uh, basically that that is that doesn't is not compatible with article 3 that you can't you can't give someone a life sentence with just absolutely no possibility of parole mm-hmm. that um now the question here is how do you implement that in terms of extradition because mm-hmm. one of the ideas behind extradition cases at the court is if a member state is going to send someone to a third party country that's not a member state um and there's a, a risk or a possibility um that they could have one of their human rights violated then it's the member state's responsibility to make sure not to send them or to make sure that if they are sent that their rights are protected. So a lot of the times what you will see are assurances from third parties saying, you know, they'll be held in these conditions and they'll be given this will be the, how their trial works out. So it's it's quite an important area and, and especially with the UK, we deal with a lot of deportation cases. Um, this one obviously then asks, how do you implement something that happens within the convention system? Uh, to the US in terms of their system and it can get a bit messy Messy, then you know whenever it's a completely different legal jurisdiction so uh, they'll they'll be interesting judgments when they come out um, absolutely um, but um yeah and I was looking at it there so do do you um, so sorry forgive my ignorance but (laughs) the case is obviously taken against the the United Kingdom and um you know their decisions are under scrutiny yes you said there is. Is it likely that the US would intervene in cases like this just to give that level of assurance? I know it doesn't mention it here, but it strikes me as the reason that this person um, had brought the case was um, relying on Article Three, which is the prohibition of inhumane or degrading treatment. Mm-hmm. It was based on um, him potentially suffering imminent and irreparable harm in the form of this life sentence without yes. parole, and yep. um, which is obviously the jurisdiction you know apply or the, the the rules applied in in the US. Yeah. Um, is, that strikes me as being one that would arise potentially quite a lot if that's their standard system or it would be um, most of our well yeah in terms of the US yeah. yeah I think there's I mean there's this one and then I think I've dealt with maybe two or three that mm. have followed this so there's maybe about four or five against the UK in general and then as I said that one went to the grand chamber um, I can go through the yeah. different chambers of the court if you want yeah, at some well, point but um, that one went to the grand chamber alongside mm, a case against Italy so it's not I think there's a mm. couple of other countries that have had okay. similar things. So it is kind yeah, of Yeah, it's interesting just yeah. to see how different jurisdictions will yeah. play into it. I'm just wondering how this might be a question that you can't answer. Well, it won't be because nobody can see into the future. But I imagine deportations, not deportations, which is, it's almost worse, offshore processing of asylum claims yeah. to Rwanda. Yeah. One-way tickets. Yeah. Has to be, in anybody's eyes, a clear breach of It'll many legal instruments, including yeah. human rights, the European Human Rights Convention. Like, do you have any thoughts on that, or has it been discussed among your colleagues? Because it, it's it came around so fast yeah. that we're still trying to get our heads around it. We obviously don't know what's going to happen, but the deal seems to be signed, sealed, mm-hmm. and delivered. And as immigration lawyers that we are in our daily jobs, I mean, we're just kind of sitting, still scratching our heads, thinking, how on earth? 
can this happen? And I think the government are expecting, they clearly said they're expecting legal challenges. So, I mean, I'd say that might be, (laughs) you might get busier. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously it was announced so quickly. I I don't know if we've had time to even think about it too much, but I I mean, we are certainly expecting something eventually. Yeah, Um, sure. Obviously it needs to go through the domestic courts first. It could be that we get some of these interim measures applications. That's Mm -hmm. the way we would get get it the quickest. Uh, It just depends how they are framed. Um, Yeah and what the conditions in Rwanda are going I mean, obviously, one of the main things is that Rwanda is outside of the Council of Europe. Okay. And it's not party to the convention. So um, that could cause issues as well, that people are being sent to somewhere that isn't a member state or sure. hasn't signed up to the convention. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, that, that it's definitely something. I mean, I suppose the way we work, because it takes so long for things to get through the domestic mm-hmm. courts, everything's offset by yeah. <laughs> a few mm-hmm. years almost. So um, It'll be interesting to see um, if there are any interim measures brought. But just on that point, talking about the UK and the government, um, how did Brexit or does Brexit impact your work in terms of maybe numbers coming through? Is there confusion there between you know yeah. the fact that you're separate from the EU institutions? Have you noticed anything that might... Big time, yeah. Um, I actually, I mean, I started January 21, so just after mm. withdrawal had, yeah. uh, you know, officially happened. And I remember getting applications then, people saying, you know, you need to stop the UK from leaving. <laughs> like, we can't, <laughs> it's not us. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, confusion between the two bodies. And um, anytime I'm talking to people, I very I have to clarify it's not mm. an EU body. So mm-hmm. in terms of my actual work or the work of the Council of Europe, it hasn't changed anything. Okay. Um, uh, I think my Scottish colleague had to get uh, like residence permit or something. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding. So uh, I think that in oh, terms wow. of uh, yeah. practicalities, that's all that changed. Yes. But we have noticed that um, cases coming in have gone mm-hmm. down. And we think that's part of it where people obviously confuse the two and think they Mm -hmm. can't apply to us basically anymore um so yeah i think that's definitely played a part in it my goodness yeah you would get confused though and you're thinking european you would yeah and i think even from the press and media i mean that's confusing for people unless you're working like even from our end i mean we're lawyers as such but we don't really think of it um but i think i mean that's why we have guests like you on the (laughs) show (laughs) to explain your work but, um, yeah, so sir, I mentioned previously that um, you're a member of the European Association um, of Lawyers for Democracy and Human Rights and also uh, a member of the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers. So we had a previous guest, yeah, um, Declan, Dac- Owens. Declan Owens, who was on. Um, if you just want to give, he give an insight as well, if you just want to give the listeners an insight into your experience of both of those groups or societies. Yeah, um, I don't know how much I can really give. I mean, I... I I only recently actually qualified as sister, so yeah. following that, I joined both of the groups. Um, I think it, it helps, uh, obviously, having sisters and, and lawyers ac- across yeah. Europe, or um, all in one and one, not one place, obviously, yeah. <laughs> with everything going on, but mm. um, contributing together and working together and things like that. Um, but I am quite new to both of them, so. Yeah. But for me, it was it's mm. it's I suppose law in general is very much about having connections and mm-hmm. um, and branching out and things like that. So. Um, I think it's the same as here, though. We mm. find that bringing lawyers on, even just on this podcast, mm. and with you with immigration mm. solicitors, it, it's good to have a group of people. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd you, be lost. Yeah, because sometimes you can just be by yourself yeah. as, a, as a solicitor and it's feel like you've no one yeah. to go to and no one, to, no one to ask. Especially in practice as well. You can feel quite isolated if you were by yourself. So I feel um, showing up at events even or 
taking part in, in groups like that where you're speaking with peers, you get to know them and you're learning all the time as well. I mean, I yeah. don't think any of us are experts. Yeah. In, in our, I'm certainly not an expert, <laughs> especially this week, having to clue what's going yeah. on in immigration. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important. And as you said, you, you start now in your, your legal journey. It's been, well, really interesting start to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just in terms of cases that are, I suppose, you're working with UK and Irish um, matters that are brought before you. Has there anything, uh, has anything interesting arisen in terms of Northern Ireland or any legacy cases? Because we would have had quite a few lawyers on mm-hmm. um, who worked on legacy cases and cases, you know, ongoing from the Troubles. Yeah. And I know the Article 2 in particular would have played a huge part in that um, as well. Have you any um Yeah, I mean, I... My background before the court was in a lot of legacy work at KRW as well. Sure, yeah. um, so I had that experience, more direct experience. The court in general has, has its Article 2 case law has really mm-hmm. developed from um, the conflict here. Um, Ireland and the nor- North and South has had a bit of historical relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. the first ever case the court dealt with in, was it 1950 or something, was against Ireland. It was an Irish case about internment. Um, and then obviously one of the biggest interstate cases was Ireland against UK which related to the Hooded Men in the 1970s so uh, Ireland's always had a bit of a special relationship in terms of the court with Article 2 that's one that's more developed in the last 30 years possibly Um, but that has been a big area that has developed, Uh, you look at the the court actually has really handy case law guides mm-hmm. if anyone's interested in looking into the articles themselves. Mm. Um, if you look through the Article 2 one, it's a lot of cases against the UK relating to um, Northern Ireland uh, and Turkey, I think, as well, with the conflict they had. Okay. So uh, Northern Ireland has been, um, I suppose, in some ways, very key to the development of the case law in that mm-hmm. area. There are a number of cases at the minute. I think they're called the McCurr group of cases. There's about, I think, eight of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the... I don't know if I explain this properly, but the there's a committee of ministers within the Council of Europe, mm-hmm. and they are the the body with oversight over the the whole organisation. Mm-hmm. And basically, part of their job is once the court makes a judgment, um, the committee of ministers are involved in execution of judgments. There's mm-hmm. a department that deal with that, basically making sure the member states have done what they've been asked to, or have actually executed the judgment as as it was written. Um, now these McCurr cases have been. Uh, ongoing for mm-hmm. some time and I think the, co- the Committee of Ministers um, brought out a statement recently basically saying it's not good enough, you know, right. legacy investigations need to happen in these cases and it's not good enough that they haven't basically mm-hmm. so um, yeah, it's it's kind of one of those difficult ones that's mm-hmm. ongoing and you know, we've seen talk of amnesties and mm-hmm. different proposals to lead with the legacy so yeah. those obviously haven't been before the court or anything like that but um, it's it's definitely an area the court has been very involved in. And mm-hmm. even a lot of uh, the domestic cases I worked on and the legacy cases here, a lot of them quote the court's case law. That's very important in terms of yeah, how so those are litigated. That's so interesting. So they were really integral in the development then. Absolutely. Of that that's so interesting. And yeah. as you said, there's resources there that anybody can check. Yeah, they're really easy to find. There's yeah. case law guides for the court. So I think all the major articles mm-hmm. of the convention have their own one. It just sets out basic principles and uh, gives examples of cases throughout. Sure. So some quite key a good reading for people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and many of our listeners are young, aspiring lawyers and students and people who've just qualified. So if you could give some of them advice, just obviously you've had a unique journey to becoming, yeah. becoming a lawyer. If you could just give some of 
that advice to anyone who's beginning their journey into law? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I've always done is um, just go for any opportunity that comes up. Mm. Um, even when I was working in uh, some of the corporate firms, I was always trying to find an internship or a mm-hmm. volunteering position or just anything that yeah. I find interesting but might help. Uh, even, I mean, applying for the job I'm in now, I'm, I was close to not doing it, but mm-hmm. I'm glad I did, obviously. So it is it is really just about uh, taking any, any and all opportunities you can and that come up. Obviously, the big thing is finding where your interest lies and how mm-hmm. you get there. But I think, actually, I sort of stumbled across my interest by doing a lot of those different internships mm-hmm. and volunteering and, and just taking any opportunity. Sometimes you won't enjoy it and sometimes you will. But, but at least yeah. you're learning from exactly. each experience and one door um, leads to another opening. Exactly. But in terms of a lot of, a lot of our guests as well have worked abroad, um, especially when it comes to human rights yeah. lawyers, they do yeah. take that opportunity. Do you think that's important for you? And, you know, would you recommend, you know, taken even a year or two out to work abroad what's the experience like in terms yeah, of yeah i mean I, th- I think everyone should spend some time abroad to oh, be yeah. honest i think it's a good experience um i mean obviously i did i did i traveled australia for a bit but that mm-hmm. wasn't really work related at all but <laughs> even that was a good experience in terms of kind of getting out and yeah, seeing the world a bit uh, more yeah. but in terms of career it's really good um obviously i did my internship at the court in 2018 mm-hmm. and that was good just in terms of well obviously the work was really interesting mm-hmm. but you know, I got to know people who are now lawyers all over Europe, mm-hmm. basically. You have that network. I mean, it doesn't That's always good. play into your day-to-day, but it's always good to know people yeah. dealing with different things across Europe. And uh, obviously now I'm, I'm based in Strasbourg again, and y- you build that network a bit sure. more. So, yeah, no, I think it's it's important to mm-hmm. figure out what other countries are dealing with, what yeah. other lawyers are dealing with. And um, it's, no, it's been a fantastic experience. Nice so place far. to live. It's lovely. Yeah. Although now that COVID's gone, it's lovely. Is it? Yeah, it has it opened <laughs> off properly. Yeah, yeah oh, no, it's great. back to normal now, but no, it's oh, lovely. That's fantastic. Well, just finally, Michael, the question that we ask um, all of our guests on the Activist Lawyer podcast, what does, and your role is very unique, um, what does activism mean to you in terms of the law and how can we use it to affect change? Um, I think one of the biggest things for me, maybe more so from my training contract, and to be fair, I kind of see it from the other side now, um, and one of the most important things for lawyers in general, I find, is providing accessibility to clients and to people who, I mean, I think when you work in law, it it can become normalised or you get used to it, whereas people outside just haven't it's so confusing and it's understandably confusing you know um so i deal with that a lot with applications coming in people making arguments that you're like that's fair but that's not how that works or that's not how that convention is applied so i think that's a big thing in terms of uh the lawyer's role in activism Mm -hmm. is is um assisting in that sense or opening that door in many ways um i think at the same time I think some of the biggest changes have almost come from changing the law as opposed to mm. within it. Um, I think Repeal the Eighth was a big one, you know, Massive, and, and yeah. you see that kind of mass movement, but mm-hmm. it's always linked with the law in some ways. And um, there are legal challenges that need to happen alongside that mm-hmm. uh, as well. So I suppose it's just, it, it's being involved in both sides. I mean, in the activism and the lawyer mm-hmm. and, and both together, obviously, as well. But um, yeah, I think... Um, I think it's it's just important to be, especially as a lawyer, to be there for people who just, mm-hmm. they're probably in their, you know, you're not going to meet many people in the best part of their lives when they're having to yeah. go to a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really about... It's and especially in the area that you work in too, yeah. you know. 
No, absolutely. So I do think it's about accessibility and yeah. that's what we're there for, I guess, at the end of the day. Access yeah. to justice. Well, look, exactly. I am just uh, delighted to hear more about your particular experience. Yeah. And I'm really keen to find out what, what you do next as well. Um, <laughs> Me too. Yeah, well, tell us whenever you find out yourself. But it's been really great to have you on. I really appreciate you coming um, to meet us today at the studio. And I'm sure people listening will have lots of food for thought lot, yeah. um, in terms of your uh, legal uh, journey which is only starting only beginning know, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look thank you so much Michael for thank joining us much. today thanks for having me no problem talk soon this podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how Granite Podcast Studio can help Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.